And we're live. Welcome back to another episode of the Wheelie Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Micah Toll, and I'm joined again by Electrex Seth Weintraub. How's it going, Seth? Good. Just going to bring up the uh, page here. I always forget to do something here. Perfect. Well, uh, we've got a bunch of interesting stories this week because it's actually the uh, end of year podcast. We're going to go over all of the biggest stories of the year. And it's an extra special podcast because we're also sponsored by VMAX Electric Scooters. If you're looking for a high quality e-scooter with superior performance, you're going to want to check out their range of scooters. But we're going to have more on them later in the show. For now, let's go over a little bit of what you're going to see this hour. We've got uh, big stories, including Honda's electric bicycle was very popular this year. We also saw some uh, interesting custom jobs like a uh, mini camper built on a bicycle frame and another uh, several other just very interesting, very high view articles this year. So I think we're going to start off with uh, what's that first one? Honda this time. Yeah, Honda shows off its first electric bicycle. Perfect. So yeah, this one was just like a, a huge story. Everyone wanted to to see what Honda was going to bring to the electric bicycle table. And to be honest, I was kind of surprised at how normal it, it looked. You know, I, I thought Honda would come in with some crazy concept, but what they've built here is what looks like you could see on any, you know, downhill mountain bike trail uh, anywhere. It's It's basically a fairly standard single pivot uh, suspension mountain bike. It's obviously got some nicer parts. Looks like some, uh, you know, quality brakes. The motor there, interestingly, appears to be what looks like a Broza motor to me. It's not a Honda um, electric motor, which is kind of a shame because, you know, a lot of people think of Honda as like an engine company that also sells cars and motorcycles. So to not have them build their own electric drivetrain is kind of a bummer. But at least it is a you know, mid-drive, full-suspension mountain bike. And uh, to me, this looks like something that could actually be produced. Now, Honda hasn't said they're definitely going to do it yet, but they are making a really big push. They've floated anywhere between 10 to 30 new uh, electric two-wheeler designs in the coming decades. So I could see them actually pushing this out, especially with, you know, Honda's manufacturing might, it certainly would not be, uh, you know, a big deal for them to to add an electric bicycle to the line. And it would be an interesting shake up to the market. Could you see yourself riding a, a Honda electric bike, Seth? I think so. Yeah, you're right. I think it's a kind of a surprise on a couple of levels that uh, they, they didn't even go with a Japanese motor brand. Like they could have, you know, used Panasonic or Yamaha or um, who else? Uh, Shimano, obviously, um, but they went with a German, which you know so so happens to be one of my favorite, if not my favorite, uh, uh, electric bike motor brand, Rosa. Um, so for me, this is kind of like I would love to try this thing. Uh, it looks great from a lot of different aspects. It kind of has a swing arm that is more reminiscent of a um, motorcycle type of e-bike uh, than a mountain bike type of e-bike, um, but you know, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff to like here. And obviously with the Honda brand, their scalability, it would be fantastic if they introduced this. I'm a little bit more pessimistic than you. Um, I kind of <laughs> feel like they are just showing, Hey, we can do this kind of stuff too. Um, but you know, here's our gas stuff. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, obviously we'd love to see something like this. Um, I, I would be first online to try one of these, I would hope. Um, but 
um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more pessimistic, I would say. You know what I think would be interesting with that rear swing arm? Um, you know, what you point out there, it's true. It, it has a very high rise to it and it doesn't mm-hmm. look like a normal mountain bike swing arm. But what it would allow is using a belt drive without having to make any changes because the entire chain line runs underneath the swing arm instead of through a typical rear triangle. So it could be an interesting design that would allow you to run either a chain and derailleur or a belt drive setup with a internally geared hub, which would be pretty cool to be able to have both options on the same bike. For sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities here. You know, the, the, uh, the front suspension is like insanely, it looks like about six inches of, uh, front suspension. So, I mean, this is, would be a super cool bike, but I mean, it could even be like a downhill bike, but, um, yeah, it remains to be seen. Yeah. Fingers crossed on this one. That's, yeah. that's all I'll say. <laughs> all right. Let's look at our next story, which is why more college campuses are starting to ban electric bikes. This one is kind of a bummer, um, and it comes from sort of two different angles. There were a lot of college and university students that returned to um, fall semester this past August and found that while they were welcome back, their electric bikes and electric scooters were not. And the two biggest issues that were causing a lot of these universities to make these bans were a combination of fire safety, which has its own issues, as well as rider safety, especially with electric scooters that have become very popular on campuses. And you'll often see students weaving around very tight walking paths through the quad. And there have been a lot of uh, you know collisions between distracted students and distracted student scooter riders. Um, so I can sort of understand both of these, but I think the, the biggest issue here has really been fire safety, which has, you know, been growing throughout the year, especially in New York city, which has kind of been the epicenter of electric bike fires in the U S. And I, I think it's always important to point out when we talk about e-bike fires, that the actual number of, of absolute fires is very small compared to the number of e-bikes out there. But, you know, like many of these things, it only takes one for there to be a a lethal situation. And there certainly have been several deaths in New York City alone this year um, due to very cheaply produced electric bicycle batteries. Obviously, batteries that are not UL certified um, and just come from, you know, cost cutting uh, factories that are, are not building very high quality bikes. And so even if it's only a few, these stories spread around the Internet and they make these college campuses very jumpy, especially when they're responsible for, you know, hundreds of students living in one uh, dorm building. So I can kind of understand where some of these universities are coming from, but it seems to me like these blanket bans are counterproductive, especially when many colleges are trying to promote sustainability. They're trying to promote more walkable campuses, not having a bunch of cars parked on campus, that sort of thing. So I would have loved to have seen uh, a little more nuance to these rules. You know, it has to be UL certified or one of several other uh, international certifications. You know, there are German standards, European standards as well. It's not just UL. Um, but to just have these blanket bans on many universities around the country, I think is is a, a real shame because 
these, in my opinion, these electric bikes, electric scooters have been, you know, the, the biggest revolution in student mobility. I know just like a decade ago when I was in college, it was like you, you took the bus or you walked and sometimes you had to walk a long ways. So being able to have an e-bike on campus now and not have to rely on a, um, you know, shady bus schedule late at night, that sort of thing is, is a big deal. In terms of the the safety aspect, I do think that it, it has become a bigger issue, especially with electric scooters that are being ridden around college campuses and, you know, running over people, that sort of thing. And I'm not sure what the best way is to combat that. It's, it seems hard to enforce when someone can just zip away on a scooter. Um, but in, in both of these cases, you know, I understand where these universities are coming from, but I just wish there was a better way to implement this that didn't, um, you know, vilify and just outright ban these vehicles. Yeah, I fully agree. Uh, I think the devil's in the details. Um, you basically have a new mode of transportation that you have to kind of account for. Um, so, you know, I, I went to school and, you know, at USC and, and kind of downtown LA, our campus was pretty tight. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of places where bikes were not uh, they weren't allowed to go and people rode them anywhere anyway, and it was very stressful. Um, so already there was a problem, uh, with bikes and now you have these faster bikes. The other side of the coin though, is, um, you know, I, I rode my bike from downtown LA to USC. I lived downtown and I, uh, you know, obviously went to school there and that was like a, I don't know, six mile bike ride on city streets. And it would have been so much better to have, uh, an electric bike. In fact, um, when uh, the LA auto show happened, which is like at the Staples center, kind of in between downtown and, and the USC, um, uh, propel, uh, uh Chris, uh, Nolte, uh, propel gave me a, uh, a serial one e-bike to ride. And I was like, Oh my God, this would have made my life so much easier. <laughs> uh, and you know, I, I went from the Staples center. I went to a, a football game, the South part of the USC campus, and just zoomed around all over the place uh, with an electric bike, and it was just so much better. Um, you know, obviously, I'm not in the same shape I was uh, when I was uh, at 20 years old, but um, I think I would have probably gotten, I, I would have done a lot more of my travel uh, on a e bike than I would have on my regular bike. I think um, I would have probably gone more places. Um, you know, there's a lot of places kind of within range of downtown LA that I, you know, probably would have visited more if I had an electric bike rather than, or a scooter rather than having to pedal around. So, um, you know, from my own personal experience, I know that electric bikes are going to be good for college students. They probably, you know, certainly are already are. As far as the, the lead legislation, I agree again, um, devil details, um, you know, like don't take batteries into your dorm rooms. Obviously, you know, that one dorm room fire is going to leave the universities open to like incredible lawsuits. And, and obviously they want to keep their kids safe. So like, let's make, you know, common sense rules. Like you can only charge your bikes outside, um, stuff like that. If they're worried about the fires and, you know, in the house, like only chart, like let's set up, you know, some plugs outside so you can, you know, charge your bikes or, you know, some areas that electric bikes can be charged um, you know, on campus, off campus, you know, it's kind of whatever. Um, they, they can't legislate, uh, what happens off there. Um, as far as like, you know, driving lanes say, Hey, e-bikes can't go in 
you know, walkable areas. They can only go where, you know, streets, things like that make, make this easier. It's a lot more difficult than just say, Hey, blanket ban, no, no e-bikes. We're not responsible. We don't have to worry about it. The lawyers check off the, the thing. That's the easy thing to do. That's the like, you know, lazy thing to do. Uh, I hope more universities, uh, don't do that. And, and frankly, like if I'm picking a university and I have a choice between two and I'm a smart student, I'm going with the one that lets me use my e-bike. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't even imagine what the e-bike scene at USC must look like today. I, I think the last time I was at USC was like 2009. And I remember, so I was an undergrad at uh, University of Pittsburgh and I went to USC and there's like hundreds of bikes all parked in front of the library. And then I get back to Pitt and there's like three and a half bikes parked in front of the library. A half. I like the half. Yeah. So I can't imagine now with e-bikes, I mean, they just must be all over campus. Yeah. I mean, it's a great bikeable area. Um, and with the downtown being adjacent now and thriving when I was there, uh, like between USC and downtown was kind of sketchy. You just like rode really fast and didn't look, <laughs> didn't look around. Just hopefully nobody like no, jumps contact. you. Yeah. And you know, like you don't want to stop basically, as long as you're, you keep moving, you're in good shape. Uh, but now it's like, you know, Staples centers there and, um, uh, the, the, convention centers there and there's all kinds of nice stuff in between and even nice restaurants and stuff that the kids today, they don't have, they have no idea what we had to do <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. They're all spoiled by their e-bikes. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. Let's move on here. Uh, why e-bike companies are fighting to stop riders from repairing their own electric bikes. I think this might've been one of the most controversial articles of the year, um, perhaps not surprisingly, because it relates to the right to repair, which is a very controversial issue. For e-bikes specifically, I guess we start with right to repair. The right to repair is is the idea that once you've bought a product, you shouldn't be uh, prevented from fixing it yourself if it breaks. You know, you shouldn't be required to go back to the manufacturer and, you know, have it held ransom. You have to pay them a high fee and only they can do it. And, and, and I... And you should clarify it's, also that sometimes the manufacturers say, well, if you go inside it, your warranty is void. And, you know, they, they have kind of like ways of making uh, right to repair uh, not a right, uh, you know, with their policies. So right, it's not absolutely. always it's not always uh, obvious. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. And so with electric bikes, it's interesting because, you know, there's a long and storied history of people doing their own bike maintenance and repair, you know, like bikes just are not that complicated. It's not like changing your oil in your car where you got to get down there and get dirty, you know, get a pan, whatever with a couple tools, you can work on a bike with e-bikes. Things get a little trickier because suddenly you've got high voltage batteries. And when these are lithium batteries, you have the potential for fire if these things are not handled correctly. So it, it becomes a touchier subject where on the one hand, manufacturers would always prefer to have a monopoly on repairs, partly from the money side. But now with all these lithium batteries, it gives them the chance to say like, well, we should really be the only ones doing it because we know how to do it safely. From the consumer side, they don't want to feel like they either have to buy a brand new five, $600 battery or pay hundreds of dollars to get their battery repaired when it might be something that could be you know, as simple as swapping out a fuse or a connector. 
when you when you get into the nitty gritty, that's where you know the the real issue is because at different levels of repair, these things get progressively more dangerous. If you just need to change a connector, it's not that bad. If you need to change out an entire battery cell and you were to, for example, in this picture, peel away that blue heat shrink covering that battery, dropping a screwdriver on top of those exposed contacts could result in a, a short circuit and a fire. So on the one hand, I certainly understand manufacturers more than in other industries with their um, hesitancy to allow this this right to repair, specifically about the batteries. When it comes to motor and everything else, I think screw them. Anybody with you know a screwdriver should be allowed to work on their bike. But I, I'm just even like you know four months on from when this uh, article broke, I'm still not sure exactly where I fall on the battery repair side of this because there it's you know it would be unfair to say that there are not legitimate dangers to working on these batteries. I don't know. How do you feel about this, Seth? Uh, I mean, 48 uh, volts and, you know, 20, 30 amps. Uh, I don't want any part of that personally. <laughs> um, so I feel like maybe there should be kind of like a, you have a right to repair every part of your bike, except, you know, taking the battery piece apart. I mean, I don't know. Or, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of on your own, I guess would be the, the better way to do it. Like, I mean, you can open up a car and do anything you want to it. And, um, you know, all the dangers that go along with that, it's kind of, you know, like people kind of expect like, Hey, if you, you know, you cut yourself on the, the fan of a motor or, you know, do whatever, uh, that's on you. Um, I think, I think there needs to be a kind of like, Hey, th this is all fun and games. This whole bike thing is fun and games until you get to the battery and then the battery is like you should probably think about this a little bit before doing anything that said um you know i had a uh two scorpion that had a, a short between the battery and the um the, the connector and uh you know they they just sent me like some parts and they were like mm, here's what you do unscrew this <laughs> you know unplug the controller which you know, kind of saves most of the stuff, but like, you know, I was touching stuff that touched 48 volts and, or 52 volts, I guess with them and, uh, a lot of amps and, you know, I had rubber gloves on, but, uh, I feel like, I feel like a, a less safe person than me might run into some troubles there, but they didn't seem too stressed out about it. Yeah. And I think, you know, lots of times when these rules are made, you can't consider like the normal average person that you can say like, you know, don't touch these two wires to your tongue and it's, it's all fine. You have to consider the people that like, they put the warning not to use the toaster in the bathtub. Right. You know, there's always those, the ends of the, the bell curve that you have to consider. Right. Yeah. So I wonder if that sort of plays into this as well, in addition to the general liability that these companies are worried about. Yeah. And I guess, you know, that's maybe that's part of the whole thing is like, look, we have to say this because there's going to be some idiot who's going to, you know, take a bath with his battery and we're going to, we can't be responsible for that guy. And our lawyers tell us that we have to write that you can't do anything if, you know, and we're not responsible if you do anything and you avoid the warranty. If you do anything, I get that. Um, I just wish it was, you know, again, devil in the details, like let's, let's just isolate like the scary parts of the bike, you know, and, like everything else kind of just free for all, whatever. 
Yeah, perhaps there's some sort of happy compromise in there. Though so, uh, it seemed like, based on the comments on that one, a lot of people were not prepared to compromise at all. <laughs> right, exactly. And 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 that's that's kind of the issue. All right, uh, let's uh, read off our sponsor real quick. Today's episode is sponsored by VMAX Mobility, Inc., one of Europe's leading e-scooter brands. The brand was founded in 2015 and is headquartered in Switzerland. After eight years of growth in Europe, VMAX e-scooters are now available in North America. VMAX UL certified e-scooters offer exceptional performance and reliability with a motor, battery, controller, and frame that are all built to last for years. The brand's high-quality components are all made in VMAX's ISO-certified facility for maximum control over safety and design. On the company's latest models, you'll find integrated turn signals, ultra-bright front lights, responsive brake lights, tubeless tires with superior tire tread, an anti-slip deck, and built-in suspension. You'll also find a powerful motor, high-torque, instant instant responsiveness, advanced electronics, and regenerative braking for unmatched performance. VMAX offers an industry-leading 24-month warranty, and with nationwide repair shops and a local U.S. warehouse for parts, servicing is easy. Check out the latest VX5, VX2 Pro, and VX4 models, and stay tuned for the exciting new VX3. If you're a speed enthusiast, don't miss the company's R40 and R55 high-speed race scooters. Visit vmax-escooter.us and use promo code VMAXELECTREC for exclusive offers for a limited time. Thanks again to VMAX for sponsoring, and make sure you hit the link in the show notes there. Man, sign me up for those race scooters. We'll have to check them out. All right, let's move on here. These two guys built the world's smallest and cutest camper on a bicycle. Man, I I love this one. So generally for the Willie podcast, I try to get like a nice smattering of all sorts of different stories, but I didn't even have to try hard this time because there are so many different unique top stories of the year. And this one is definitely unique. These are two brothers that uh, created the essentially the world's smallest bike camper. And it really looks like a 1980s style uh, camper, but built on the back of a tricycle. And amazingly, it's not even an electric tricycle. They just used like a normal pedal tricycle. And their goal was to to build this thing. The two of them could basically live in, sleep in, and go on a hundred mile road trip. And they did a, a pretty impressive job, I have to say. Not only does it look good, but they've got a like breakdown bed in the very top. So you've got plenty of headroom when you're standing in there. But when you want to go to sleep, the bed kind of assembles in the top area and you can lay all the way out. Um, you know, you got to be close with your brother there. But uh, as long as you don't mind, you know, cuddling, <laughs> then uh, it's it's got a full length bed there. Um, you can see they've got a little kitchenette, a single burner, working sink, um, a little spice rack. So, you know, they could live in this thing and, and really treat it like an actual camper. Uh, but if you, if you go back and you watch the video they shared while they intended to go on a hundred mile trip, they only made it about 20 or 25 miles after two days because they just found it so arduous to pedal this thing. I think at one point they went past a Walmart and they bought a second pedal bike and they towed it like by tying one bike to the the trike camper and so the two of them could could pedal together because it was just so heavy so non-aerodynamic so slow going that even a tiny incline 
would just you know slow you down to like one mile an hour and man their their quads must have been burning that's like a serious you know peloton sprint the entire time yeah uh well so you know you said it was a good looking thing i think looks can be subjective i think uh <laughs> Uh, some people are going to love the look of this and maybe some aren't, you know, I think it's just, you know, wacky, but, uh, you know, good for them for trying the obvious thing. Like everybody's I'm sure thinking is, well, why didn't you, they just, I mean, they did all this work on this, you know, electronics and all this other stuff. Why didn't they just put a hub motor in the front of the, uh, thing to, you know, they have the batteries, they have most of the stuff there. They did it. Like, it really just seems like the perfect application for, you know, an electric motor. I mean, that's kind of like, I'm sure everybody's thinking that. Um, but also like, this is a great beta. Like, why not actually build? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know if anybody would mass produce this, but like, it seems like something that would be super fun to have. I mean, obviously, you would want something a little bit more aerodynamic, a little, you know, put together a little bit better. But um you know, obviously there's so much interest in this, mostly from a, you know, freak show point of view, but also from a, like, this would actually be kind of cool to have if, you know, it had an electric motor, if it had, you know, better solar panels on the roof was a little bit more aerodynamic, um, you know, all that stuff. It Like having the solar panels on the roof may, uh, you know, I'm not going to do back of napkin math, but, you know, if you're riding, you know, 30 miles a day, maybe you can get 30 miles of solar, uh, you know, from, from the sun. I, you know, I, I'm not sure if that's the right map, but, um, it just seems like there's a lot of potential here for some really cool stuff. And, you know, tuk tuks are obviously quite popular. You're, you're kind of on the way to building something like that. <laughs> I, like why not just finish it off? Yeah, if there's ever been a case for a solar electric trike that like no one could even accuse you of cheating with, this would be the exact case for it. I and I agree like I would love to own this. I would definitely use it. The thing is, I don't know how much you'd have to charge for this. There's a pretty nice European bike camper that's like half the size. I think it starts at 6000 euros. So for something this big, I mean, you're looking at probably like ten thousand dollars, right? Easily, especially yeah. uh, in the in Europe. The other thing is, like, I, I keep thinking, like, they have those, um, you know, the coffee trucks on on a bike thing. Yeah. That that's not that different from this. Like, you could kind of make either this out of that or that out of this. Um, so, you know, it's not. I wouldn't say it, it's that much um, extra work to do, but. Um, yeah, just it's just a really interesting thought process here. Um, I would also like make it a little bit longer. Like it seems like it's very high <laughs> and you know tall. And why not? You know, you have kind of infinite space behind you from a um, aer aerodynamic point of view. Um, so why not use that space a little bit more than the up and down space? Yeah, it so, is a little more of a telephone booth proportion right, right. now. So yeah, that's. Sorry, go on. No, no. I, I just think there's like, this is a great start. Like, let's let's keep working on this. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can find someone to convert one of those coffee carts into a camper for us. Yeah, yeah. Definitely on, definitely on for 2024. All right. <laughs> uh, moving on. After first refusing, One Wheel recalls all of its self-balancing electric skateboards. 
This was an interesting saga throughout the year because One Wheel, the makers of that um, single-wheeled electric skateboard, you might have seen them. It's got like a kind of a go-kart wheel in the middle and you're straddling it on either side. So it looks like a skateboard, but which is one massive wheel. They um, sort of bucked a Consumer Product Safety Commission request that they uh, recall their electric self-balancing skateboards earlier in the year. So the CPSC put out their own statement saying like, these things are unsafe. We've gotten several reports of them just like throwing riders off or ghost riding or, you know, stopping and uh, face planting. And there are even a few deaths associated with some of these accidents. And so the CPSC said, they're not playing ball with us. They're not going to recall it, but we're saying it should be recalled and we recommend people don't ride these things. And so that went on for many months with one wheel refusing to to play ball until finally uh, late this year, the company of their own volition said, all right, we're, we're going to recall everything right now. So I'm not exactly sure what changed, whether there was, you know, some calculation they made or whether like a different legal team came in and was like, no, 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 no. But all of a sudden they said, all right, every one wheel that we've produced up to this point has been recalled. And they had uh, some sort of uh, firmware fix for some of them. I'm not sure that it applied to all of them, but they did have a, a fix in mind to fix these things. And interestingly, they've since launched a whole new one wheel model. In fact, it's like twice as powerful, I think, than the uh, previous model. So not only have they you know, worked on a fix for these existing ones, but they've gone further down the high power rabbit hole and built something that's like, you know, you got to be even braver to to hop on and ride. I think it's like a 3000 or 3500 watt motor between your legs there. So it's, it's been an interesting roller coaster of a ride following this company's recall saga here from, um, you know, refusing to recall to saying, all right, everything we've built is unsafe. <laughs> you got to send it back to, all right, here's an even more wild one wheel just like a month later. It's, uh, kind of blows the mind but if there's one micromobility product out there that's got like a super dedicated ridership base that's gonna like go with the flow on this one it's it's probably one wheel yeah my my neighbor's a uh, one wheel rider and he was he was kind of ahead of the curve on this news he was when it came out he was like yeah like everybody knows like at the end of you know the battery you're gonna get thrown off like that's just <laughs> Like who, who doesn't know that? Like, that's weird. Why would, why would people care? And, uh, <laughs> so he's probably ordering the more powerful one now as we speak. Um, but you know, I guess it's good that one wheel kind of eventually got ahead of this, uh, problem or, or a quirk, um, in the, their, uh, product. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's probably a better product now than it was previously. So, uh, you know, even this, this crazy faster one, uh, will be a little bit safer than it would have been otherwise. So that's good. Um, and I still haven't ever really rid ridden one of these. Have you ridden one of these? I've ridden one once, um, at, I think it was micromobility America, uh, last year I got a chance to try one and I got to say like. I thought it would be a lot harder. It was surprisingly intuitive when I hopped on it with one ride. Like, you know, I started by holding on to someone's arm and then like I kind of felt it within, you know, 60 seconds or so. And so I can see why people really take to these that once, you know, it clicks and the learning curve just is not that steep. 
it's quite comfortable to ride. The issue is that, like you said, if you know it, it doesn't go perfectly and when the battery dies and you're at top speed, then you're going to have a bad day very quickly. Yeah. And, and what's cool about these things is like, you know, better than skateboards, the, the one wheel is actually this big, huge wheel. So it can go in the grass it can go, you know, up hills in the grass. It can do all kinds of stuff that, you know, electric skateboards can't, even electric scooters, uh, can't really go off road unless they're wide wheels and, you know, the big ones. Um, so it's a pretty cool product. Like, uh, I hope it sticks around. Um, I, I probably should get on one and try it. I mean, if, you know, my neighbor can do it, I can probably do it. His kid's always on it. There's a bunch of kids at uh, my kid's school that are on them. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad it's still around. I'm glad they're still making stuff. Uh, we're going to have to keep an eye on, on their, uh, safety progress though. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see on one of these. Send, send me the video of that. Okay. Okay. We'll do a post. All right. The last story. Uh, I went to Norway to see an electric vehicle paradise, but founding something more surprising. Yeah, this was a really interesting one for me because I, I went to Norway and I was expecting, you know, to see like what we all hear about that everyone has electric cars and it's like the perfect country for electric cars and you can charge up and green energy and whatever. And, you know, that I did see that. That was really cool. But what I didn't realize was that that's only a small piece of the story. And in fact, Norway is already almost kind of like post electric car high and is now realizing that like, you know, it, it's the electric car isn't the final form. It's great to replace all those gas guzzlers, but we don't just want to fill Oslo with electric cars. We want to make the city actually better to live in. And so uh, a big part of that is bringing in uh, scooters and bikes and making the city more walkable and uh, improved transport, uh, public transportation. And there are things that like, I didn't even realize that I was taking part in, like right when we flew into the country, you know, like I didn't take a taxi from the airport because the train was more convenient. Like that rarely happens in the U S or, um, you know, anywhere in North America for that matter. Um, but then, you know, when I do get to the hotel, suddenly the hotel shuttles electric, uh, everything around me is electric. We went out on like a, a brunch cruise. The boats were electric boats. Um, in fact, I think the first gas-powered vehicle that we found and actually used was a, a snowmobile. And I think that was just because, you know, there just aren't that many options for electric snowmobiles yet. But just to see how much effort that Norway is putting into not just, you know, becoming the electric car capital, but saying like, you know, electric cars are a first step towards what we really want to be, which is, you know, cities that people actually want to live in, that they can get around in more conveniently and that are, we're not always relying on finding parking and, you know, clogged up streets and congestion. And to me, that was such like a beautiful conclusion and something that I just had no idea was, was such an important part of the, um, I guess the, the whole doctrine there and that it's, you know, it's not just a, uh, a concept that they're trying to will into being, it's that they're actually cutting back on a lot of these subsidies for cars, you know, the, the tax credits, the, um, lower, uh, tolls, those kinds of things that really helped people adopt electric cars in the beginning. They're starting to cut those back because you don't need those anymore. Now the idea is that, all right, we've got electric cars. Now let's find a way to not need to use cars as much. 
And so, you know, it starts from the top, it starts with that government policy, but it's something that's embraced by the public as well. And, you know, it came as a big surprise to me, but it was beautiful to see. And so I was just, you know, so excited to, to see that because I really went there expecting to see lots of electric cars. And I came away with a much more complete picture of what European cities can be. And, you know, fingers crossed what cities everywhere can be if, if we all, you know, try to embrace this concept. Now, there are some caveats here that, you know, a lot of commenters pointed out that one of the reasons Norway was able to do this is that they've got a lot of oil money or natural yeah. gas money and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, this, this isn't just like a pretty paradise story with no, uh, you know, dark corners kind of thing. But I think that it's, it's a great example of, of what can be achieved and, and what more cities and more countries can strive for. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the video. Uh, I feel like that's like one of the best feel good videos I've, you know, of 2023. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, just from my own experience, um, I haven't really ridden electric bike around in rain and snow. And it just so happens, um, you know, I moved up to Vermont uh, this winter because of my uh, son's going to school here. And um, I'm walking my dog, who's a husky and needs to be run. Uh, otherwise she's insane. Um, <laughs> so I take her on a bike on a long, you know, retractable leash. And, um, I, I took that hay bike, uh, the, what is it? The Ranger? Oh, the, the Himaway. Um, no, no, the hay bike, the hay bike, oh, the hay bike. Uh, uh okay. the, the foldable one, um, that, uh, it's like the raw. They, they have the a Ra Ranger, I think. Yeah. yeah I think S? it's the, the Ranger. Um, anyway, uh, it's a, great bike. It sits out in the rain and snow every day. Um, and it's <laughs> been working fantastically. And, you know, I was always kind of hesitant to take a, uh, a bike out rain, you know, e-bike or regular bike in rain and snow. And over these past couple of weeks, it's been just super easy. Like, you know, I'm already wearing, you know, snow pants cause we live on, on the mountain. So I don't have to worry too much about getting splashed by puddles or, or, snow um and and the uh the mud guards are pretty good on that bike so even even with with uh the wetness it's, it's not a huge problem i just think you know it, it's just not accepted um in most places that like hey it's raining out just put on a raincoat and go um so it's good to see that you know obviously you're taking video of norway in, in the middle of winter there's lots of snow everywhere it's, you know, it's not clean roads and people are still using micro mobility stuff. So, uh, I hope that, that, that message gets out that, you know, it doesn't have to be a perfect day that the roads don't have to be perfect, uh, for you to jump on a bike and have a really good time. So absolutely. Yeah. And having like a, you know, a multimodal option that, you know, when it's raining or snowing, then you just want to take, you know, the local tram or Metro or something, if you've got a robust a public transportation system, then you have options and, you know, not everybody wants to get rained on. I, I get that. So, you know, it's, it's about having multiple options as well. I think that can satisfy more people. Yep. Totally. So encourage you to, if you haven't already uh, read that story and seen that video to go take a look at it. Um, let's go into uh, the comments. Um, if you guys have any questions, I see there's about 40 people 
uh, live here. If there's any comments or questions, put them in now. This is your last chance for the year. Um, we have a few in here already from Stay Connected and Just Nova, so we'll go through those. Um, great job, guys. Thank you. Um, uh, also, make it mandatory to have UL certification to be allowed on campus to address the fire issues. Uh, that That's great. Uh, I think enforcing that might be a little bit problematic but you know you know the the school could like give out like a you know a license or something that you could slap on or sticker or something you slap on your bike to say like hey this bike's been inspected and the the ul certification is legit and you know it can be on campus what do you think yeah it's i mean it's be sort of like the modern day version of a parking permit that you know colleges like to sell for a thousand dollars or something hopefully it's a bit more affordable but you know there's already a mechanism set for allowing vehicles on campus yeah i agree all right just nava g thanks for squeezing in one more podcast before the new year uh happy to do so uh with the update from the metacycle saunders debacle all right we probably should get into this how harmful (laughs) do you think this is to the concept of the entry-level e-motorcycle yeah, so uh, just I'll, how quickly can I do the background? Um, no, Saunders Metacycle <laughs> was a uh, a very interesting, futuristic, uh, low power. I guess you know, Relative. low to mid power, eighty um, ish mile an hour motorcycle developed by Saunders Electric Bike Company, and it looked great um, when it was delivered. Like a year later, it didn't quite live up to the specs, but they started rolling out hundreds of them, and then suddenly. Uh, deliveries trickled off and stopped while Saunders kept trying to sell more and doing like crazy fire sales. And eventually we discovered that the company was just like hemorrhaging funding and eventually started collapsing. And now it looks like they've entered receivership, um, which is sort of like a bankruptcy, but basically means that the company is trying to be sold by its creditors so that whoever funded Saunders can get their money back. So it's it's looking like the Metacycle is unlikely to return unless Saunders can find a buyer that actually wants to pick it up and pay all their bills to the to the factory in China where there's like a thousand of them sitting there unfortunately. And it's a shame because the Metacycle I think probably was the sort of low to mid power commuter electric motorcycle to put this category on the map. It's not the only one out there, but it's the one that showed everybody like you can just go online and buy a $5,000 motorcycle and it'll show up at your door and really build that excitement for what is sort of like the e-bike of the the electric motorcycle world. Yeah. And I mean, you should say also like, this is not just a, you know, $5,000 Suron or something. This is a homologated, uh, highway capable, uh, you know, like great looking, uh, motorcycle, like well-designed, um, not, not exactly, or not even close to what it originally like was shown as, but like certainly <laughs> still beautiful and I, a head turner, a, you know, really good price. And it does all the things that, you know, real motorcycles do. It's not just, you know, something that came over in a box from China. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fully fledged, you know, um, like Seth said, you know, homologated street legal motorcycle. So, you know, that was a big deal to get an electric motorcycle for $5,000 like that didn't happen. The only thing close were those sort of like, you know, pocket rocket little mini uh, motorcycles. 
and they definitely didn't look as good as the Metacycle. So it really ushered in this sort of new era of direct-to-consumer electric motorcycles. But, you know, this is a good point. Like, how harmful is it to this early, you know, burgeoning industry to have this one fall apart? If if it had just been the Metacycle, I would say it would have been a lot more detrimental. But very quickly, we already started seeing similarly similarly classed uh, electric motorcycles uh, bikes like the rivet anthem that also comes from california and is in fact u.s assembled um the csc rx1e which is imported but is sort of a similar class uh you know 80 miles an hour has about 50 percent more battery and a little bit more expensive so i think that saunders got the ball rolling and showed people like as easy as it is to get onto an e-bike, like we can do that for electric motorcycles, make them approachable, um, you know, and not come with this like scary motorcycle stigma and new startups have already started to fill that, that need. So I think that it's, while it's troubling to a lot of new riders to see that company sort of fall apart, I think that there's enough hope there among these new startups to, to fill that niche and to say like this is this is an area that's going to sustain itself, you know, it's not going to die with the metacycle, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, and it's such a shame because you know, especially at the end, Saunders was taking money from you know they lowered the price and they were like certainly taking money when they knew that it was unlikely that they were going to uh, be shipping the bikes, which I oh, kind of yeah. feel like that's pretty shady. Um, I. So, you know, we had Storm on the show. We were kind of, we weren't hard, we weren't like tough enough, I think. Because he was like, yeah, everything's great. You know, things are great. And it feels, it feels like, um, you know, he went from like optimistic, you know, overly optimistic to kind of criminal. Uh, I don't want to say criminal because, you know, I'm not a court or whatever, but it just felt like he was taking people's money at that point. Um, and that's just really you know, a, a sad legacy on, you know, if we back out a little bit, Saunders was one of the first e-bike companies. They certainly put e-bikes in front of a lot of people went there. Like they did the $500 fat tire bike. Um, and you know, there was like $200 shipping and everything, but still it was like an incredible bike for the, the price. And they, they work relatively well. And, you know, per Saunders, they, they were laid and they didn't have the exact specs that people bought them for, but you know, a lot of people got Saunders bikes and, you know, I think they're actually still shipping some bikes and you can still get them at Costco at the moment. Um, so the company's in like some, this weird like limbo where I certainly wouldn't buy anything from them unless I was like looking at the bike that I was about to buy. Um, <laughs> but you know, at Costco or whatever, but, um, it's just a, such a shame because it's like, you know, there's this, this company that's, uh, uh, you know, kind of one of the, uh, iconic e-bike brands and, they, you know, they were always seen as like, well, they're overly optimistic. I mean, you know, when we talked about the Metacycle, we were like, whoa, this thing looks incredible. Keep in mind, this is Saunders. It's going to be late. It's going to be not as great as they say it's going to be, but it's still going to be great. And, you know, like we can't wait to try it. And, and you tried it and you loved it. And, you know, it had some caveats, but um, it's just like, oh, man, like it turns out like Saunders probably at the end was like, let's just do a money grab and you know, head, head off to wherever. So, uh, not a great story. Uh, the good news, I guess, is Jess Nova G, uh, actually took delivery of a rivet Anthem in November and has been loving it. 
that's awesome because wow. that's a, a really cool bike and also us made and that company by the way just to speak to that a little bit they they took a different approach and they made sure they had all the funding they needed before producing these bikes they weren't relying on pre-orders to produce them so they're uh for what i can tell in a much better financial situation yeah um yeah and that's the thing like Saunders kept taking money and taking money and taking money when you know, they, they kind of had already spent, I guess, the money. And, and what did they spend it on? Like, where did all that money go? So interestingly, I've I've been told by unnamed sources with knowledge on the matter that one of the biggest issues that started the tailspin was the Costco deal because they had to provide a better price to Costco than they were already selling. And their prices were already quite good because they were a budget brand. And so that just destroyed the little bit of margin that they had left. And that really set things in motion for, for their eventual collapse. Yeah. And, and Costco has, you know, no questions asked return policy and they have like, you know, probably a customer base that's not as uh, savvy and probably a lot of, I think I heard that they're, you know, the Costco bike support was like, you know, 10 times 10 X and the re- returns were 10 X. So that may have killed them. Uh, which is kind yeah. of ironic because they were a dropship company, not dropship, but they were uh, direct to consumer, direct to consumer. And that one consumer <laughs> facing <laughs> thing just destroyed them yep. or it destroyed the already shaky business model that was functioning, I guess. Um, so uh, just Nava G continues, in my opinion, it's a better deal and a better performing machine than what Kawasaki has with their E1. Uh, what does the E1 go for? Is that like 10,000? Um, so I think it's the Z1, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there's the or the ZE1, as I think what he's referring to. Um, and that's the uh, 7200 I want to say, $7,300, something like okay. that. And, the, and that um, one we thought was kind of underpowered, I feel like. It's definitely, it's low powered, small battery. Um, I actually sat on one at the Milan Motorcycle Show a month or two ago. And like... As soon as I sat on it, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be going very far, but I want to ride this bike. Okay. So, you know, and I mean, it comes from Kawasaki, a known entity, you know, right. dealerships. They're going to be around next place. year. Exactly. So, they're, you know, they're... it's it's very much an urban commuter motorcycle, you know, like you're not going to ride from one side of LA to the other, but you can go from downtown to USC. There you go. That's all you need. <laughs> Uh, just Nava G I'm worried because the Anthem does not have a major manufacturer badge. And in conjunction with the Saunders fiasco, this segment of bike might be stunted before it has a chance to flourish. What do you guys think? So that we kind of address that, um, you know, Anthem's got some better practices. Uh, yeah. And I, I think it's got legs. I mean, this, this, this segment's going to continue to grow. All right. Uh, kind of related to the, uh, university, uh, banning, story um nick cedar has a question any thoughts on the huge e-bike backlash that's happening in towns because of the tweens on surrons um i am very cognizant of this uh uh we got a um the tolaria which is basically a surron successor um i was letting my son take it to school um but in the third you know under 30 mile per hour mode um it turns out he He's also on the internet, so he knows how to take off the the thirty mile per hour uh, thing and cut the cord. And then one day I went out to ride it, and I was going fifty miles per hour, and I was like, "What the heck's going on here?" 
And uh, so now he doesn't have a bike. Um, and but I, I know that this is a problem, not just, you know, in suburbs, but like in, in cities where you have these bikes that don't look like e-bikes, really. They kind of look like motorcycles and they kind of behave like motorcycles. They go up to 50 miles per hour and beyond. Um, they're quite dangerous. They're, you know, people like uh, there's so there's this uh, kid in where I'm living now, uh, Manchester, Vermont, um, who rides around town just doing wheelies on his Suron um, and doesn't hurt anybody like that, you know, whatever. He's just doing a wheelie down the, the main drag. <laughs> and of course, you know, all the Facebook group is blowing up with like, why can't we destroy, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, I get it. Like, Hey, that's a little bit jarring. Like you're worried about the kid hurting himself and you're worried about like, you know, that's not legal. And what, what happens if I, you know, this kid, falls and I run them over or whatever. It's all, you know, kind of scary. And I, I guess towns need to figure this stuff out. Like, you know, make a law, make a, draw a line, enforce that line, you know, you, you got to deal with this kind of thing. It's, it's going to be there. Um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. So this, this is a tricky one. And, and my thoughts might be a little controversial here because like at first blush, like I want to say, yeah, look, we need to, you know, rein in some of this crazy riding. We need to make sure that bikes are not dangerous in and of themselves. But at the same time, you know, we have laws that say e-bikes can go up to 28 miles per hour. And if there's a 29 mile an hour e-bike, people start freaking out. However, there's not a speed limit in the country that goes over 70 miles per hour. But the second you say, well, what should we physically limit cars to? People get up in arms like, oh, I need my car to be able to go 100 miles an hour just in case. You can't take that away from me. I'm not putting a speed limiter in my engine. And so, cars are a million times more dangerous than a bike. Exactly. I would much rather be hit by a 50-pound bike than a 5,000-pound car. So, I mean, if if we really want to talk about protecting the public and removing a danger from the roads, then why are we talking about... 50 pound e-bikes that go 28 miles per hour or 30 miles per hour, you know, like let's start with the big fish. So that's, that's kind of where I fall in. Not, not saying that it's not an issue, but I think that it's scapegoating and, and not addressing the much more pressing issues. Yeah. And, you know, I would chime in with like, if you have a 35 mile per hour e-bike, that thing's going to ride with traffic rather than ha having traffic to go around. And 95% of complaints about bikes or e-bikes is that, hey, I'm trying to drive here and there's a bike and I have to go around it and it's dangerous and I hate it. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the, you know, my air conditioned car and this guy, you know, I'm blowing smoke out and this this e-bike is, you know, here, like pedaling and saving the earth and, you know, like and inconveniencing me, like, <laughs> I, you know, I, I get it. Like I'm, I'm fully F cars in that, that respect, but, um, all right. So like, let, let's talk about, um, just one last thing since we have, uh, the, the last five minutes of an hour here. Uh, what are, what are some of your predictions for 2024? Like, uh, I'm putting you on the spot, so I'll let you think about that a little bit, but I think we're going to hopefully see some like more legislation around a faster, like a class four type of e-bike. Um, that goes 35 miles per hour. I mean, I, like everybody's just kind of bumping up against 28 miles per hour. Everybody's, you know, like there's a lot of the, you know, super 73 type of bikes out there. 
I mean, in Europe, it's even like more dire with, you know, 15 mile per hour speed limits, which are great on bike paths. And, you know, when you're commingling with uh, regular bikes, that makes a lot of sense. But when you're on a street, there should be a 35 mile per hour bike that doesn't have to be, you know, passed or, or, um, it doesn't have to ride separately than that. It can kind of behave like a motorcycle would on, on, you know, surface streets. I'm not talking about highways here. I'm not talking about like even state, you know, roads that, you know, 50 mile per hour speed limits. I'm just talking about like suburban towns. I think there has to be something that makes it, I mean, you know, people will say, well, 28 is close enough and maybe, but I think you got to go up to 35. I think that's the next, the next level. Yeah. So I, I absolutely agree with you that I think, you know, my, my biggest prediction would be that regulation is on the horizon, potentially even for 2024. But I, I worry that I'm not as optimistic about what that regulation will entail as you are. Um, because like we're seeing, you know, if you go out and poll your local city council or any group of decision makers, I feel like I'm going to hear a lot more NIMBY voices than your voice saying, well, let's have like a, a bigger and better category to like officially classify these things. I worry that this is going to be the one time that Americans are like, well, maybe we should copy Europe you know, and, right. and give us more restrictive uh, regulations just because, you know, it, 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 there really is backlash, you know, that's not like um, hype or anything. There really are a lot of people that, that suddenly see e-bikes and it's different and it scares them. And I worry that that's going to translate into knee-jerk regulation that is not beneficial for everybody. Yeah. I mean, you know, from a, how to, how to do this standpoint on a federal level, you know, they have the um, neighborhood electric vehicle standard that, you know, we talk about quite a bit. And um, I feel like they could kind of revisit that standard and say, you know, that kind of could use some updates and, and states, you know, states are all over the place. And it would be nice if there was some sort of federal, you know, strengthening of that standard. But then they could also expand that standard out and, and also um, bring in bikes for that as well. I would love to see that. I, I mean, let's all ride our congressmen and women or, or whatever we got to do. Yeah. And, and the sad part is that it probably will require some sort of registration and probably license plates and all the other stuff which you know initially like it sucks because like that's just a pain in like I, don't, I hate getting my car registered and all the other stuff and having to do it with your bike is just another couple hours they have to deal with if they could make that easy that might be better but still it's a pain but i like i've kind of come to see that that's going to be required yeah even if you know just for this like proposed class four type of e-bike kind of thing. I mean, I could see that. And yeah, it's a pain, you know, it can also be a, a cost burden to some people, though these are not going to be cheap bikes to begin with. So, you know, if you can afford a $3,000, you know, Saran or Talaria mini type of bike, then I think you can afford, you know, 40 bucks a year for registration. But also at a certain point, like that's why motorcycles are as safe as they are. And let's be honest, they're not even that safe, no. but you know, there, there's a reason that brake levers don't get, you know, shoved into your kidney because there are rules about how they have to be shaped, things like that, you know? And so rules really do make these vehicles safer, or at least as, as safe as they can be. And as far as, uh, actual bike hardware, 
anything that we're looking forward to? I know CS is around the corner. We often see some cool stuff there. Any any hints or tidbits that you can think of? I don't know anything specifically, but I'm guessing that we're going to see more innovation in, in drivetrains. I think just near the, the end of this last year, and even at Eurobike, we started to see more integration of gearboxes and mid-drive motors and that sort of thing. And I could certainly see that as an expansion, potentially even from some of the, the Chinese manufacturers like uh, Bafang coming out with something. We, we see mm-hmm. it more from the higher end European manufacturers right now, but that could be something that trickles down into more affordable, uh, more sophisticated drivetrains and, and gearboxes. And this is one other thing that um, I'd love to see. Um, Drew Lowe says, we're seeing more educational programs popping up for teens who ride their e-bike to school especially in Southern California school district. We talked a few months ago or weeks ago about um, Dutch, which, you know, they, they're ahead of everything on bikes. Um, there's a Dutch like middle school program where it's an actual class where they, they learn all the bike safety rules and, and re- legislation. Why can't we have that? Like, I feel like that's, we should not only should we have it, we, we need to have it like that. That's good for everybody. And even if you're, you know, you're not a biker, right? Five years down the line, you're a student driver. You know how bikes are going to behave. You know the laws that bikes have to follow or should follow. That's going to make you a better dri- you know, car driver as well. And, uh, you know, they do have driving at driver's ed in, in schools. So uh, I think that's something that would be fantastic. And, you know, let's let's try to figure out how to start something like that. Yeah, absolutely. We, we've seen a tiny bit of it, um, you know, like Drew brought up. I think we covered uh, Super 73's uh, programs a little bit earlier in the year that they've gone to some of these Southern California schools and created these educational programs and then helped the schools build secure bike parking where if you want to use it to lock your very expensive e-bike, you have to have done this like educational program kind of thing. So it's it's cool to see small programs like this starting as pilots, but if we could create something, you know, bigger, it's hard to do on a national level with such a big country, but, you know, uh, a bigger program that can be uh, adopted for a more wider audience would be incredible. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure like some enterprising, uh, you know, a company could say, hey, look, we'll come to your school for, you know, a couple weeks a year and, and teach this course to your students. Um, I feel like that would be a pretty cool place to start. Anyway, like the dare program, but for e-bikes, <laughs> exactly like something that would actually be useful. Anyway, uh, that's it for 2023. Uh, we'll see everybody in, in 2024. Do you want to? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for tuning in and, uh, we'll see you next year. <laughs>